We're taking a large-ish bite out of the book of Revelation today, and so I'm not going to read the entire text. It was on the screen sort of just before the service began, beginning in Revelation 18.1 through 19, verse 8. I'll be bringing up parts of that text in the course of going through the sermon this morning, but uh, if you want to really dig into it, then please um, come or come online for the Bible study this evening because there is a lot more of it that we will not be specifically talking about this morning than the parts that we do, and it's all really important. But one of the reasons why we have to step back every once in a while and sort of shift our focus to a little bit wider gaze is because one of the things that happens with this book when people try to interpret this scripture, not in the light of other scripture, but in the light of the headlines and the things that we see going on in the news and on the internet, is that we fragment it. We start looking, well, this piece, that, that must refer to the Antichrist, and maybe the Antichrist is this politician or that politician, and this must refer to the mark, and all of those different things, instead of seeing not only the continuity that Revelation has with all of Scripture, but even the integrity and the continuity that it has with itself. So as we push on towards the end of the book, I want to take a step back this morning and take a little wider gaze. And once again, we are looking for exactly what we would expect. We are looking for the revelation, the unveiling, literally, of Jesus Christ. We are looking for portraits. Let me breeze through this thing here. We're looking for portraits of Jesus like what we've been seeing at various points all along the way. And those are the high points of this book because that's what the book is meant to do. We sometimes come through the darkness in order to see the light, but God brings us through always. And when we get to the end of the book, we're going to have words very directly from Jesus himself. But going back to sort of where we were at the, at the midpoint, Revelation chapter 14 actually gave us two pictures of Jesus. In the first, we saw that he was standing on Mount Zion together with the 144,000 saints, that great multitude whom no man can number, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And as I said, these are the saints. They are the people of God. We met them first back in Revelation chapter 7, where they were described as standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation to our God, Hosanna. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, kind of a heavenly Palm Sunday liturgy. But just seven chapters later, in chapter 14, once John's spiritual location has shifted from his place there by the throne of God to the land, he now looks up to see that same group. Before he was sort of looking level or maybe even looking down a little bit at that group that was gathered before the throne. Well, now John himself, spiritually, has been brought to the land and he is looking up and he sees them above him, standing on the heavenly Mount Zion. 
And we have to keep that in mind. This is the heavenly Mount Zion that is described in this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. You, church of Jesus Christ, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, not the one that's a piece of real estate in Israel. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly, the church, the congregation of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But still, these who were standing with the Lamb, these who were redeemed from mankind, with, as his first fruits, they were singing a new song. They're standing there on Zion and they're worshiping before the throne and before the four living creatures who surround that throne. And this is the mission of the church. This is where we find the church of Jesus Christ almost maybe every time that we encounter it in the book of Revelation. We are called to be a worshiping Body. This is what we were made for. We were made to glorify and fully to enjoy God, which is kind of the definition of worship. That's the reason. That's the reason why we were created. It is our purpose now in time and space and in eternity to worship the living God. But we also need to notice that as the saints worship God, heaven moves. God Moves. John observes an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the land. And we saw that. This is the content of that gospel. Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this angel... And it would be worth recalling at this point that in the early chapters of the book, angels were associated with both the ministers and the ministry of the church. So this angel and the church itself are calling the people of the land to repent. That's where the gospel begins. Fear God and give him glory. Fear him, turn away from the things that are inconsistent with him and turn towards him and give him glory. And they are calling the people of the land to join the church, the people of God, in their mission. Worship him who made heaven and earth. But it's in, his, in this historical context, this message is being proclaimed as kind of a final call. It's being proclaimed as a final call to the people of the land of Israel because the hour of his judgment has come. Now that echoes down for us. But this has a very specific context and it brings us to that second portrait of Jesus in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, where Jesus is revealed as one like a son of man seated on a cloud. And not only that, but he is ready to reap the harvest of the land. And the results of this harvest, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, were to be thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God and trampled outside the city for 1,600 stadia, which is roughly the length of the land of Israel, because this is a specific historical context. They're saying, fear God. And give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. And when his judgment comes, 
It's not going to be pleasant. Well, chapter 15 made clear that the wine of God's wrath, this vintage produced by this harvest, would be served to the inhabitants of the land by seven angels who were specifically described as having come out of the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. And these angels would be sent to enact a judgment that is absolutely required by that testimony. God's covenant kept in the ark of his covenant, which was shown in Revelation chapter 11 to be within his temple in heaven. So this isn't just random. This isn't God saying, you know, I've, I've, I've just, I'm so fed up with how evil things have become, I'm going to pour out my wrath. This is a covenant action. God is bringing to pass the curses of the covenant that he made with his people in the days of Moses. And he's going to bring them to pass by pouring out seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Well, the very next chapter, chapter 17, which we, or 16, which we covered in the evening Bible study a couple of weeks ago, revealed both the targets and the nature of the judgments that are poured out by the seven angels. Remember, continuity. This book is not just random visions here and there. There's a continuity to this. And so chapter 15 tells us these bowls are going to be poured out according to the will and the decree of God. Chapter 16 tells us how and on who and what those things mean. And it culminates in chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, with the great city, which was identified in chapter 11 as the great city where the Lord was crucified. So it's just nailed down. That great city, whatever other names it may bear spiritually, it's called Sodom in the book of of Revelation. It's called Egypt. Here it's going to be called Babylon. But that great city is the city where the Lord was crucified, and we know that means Jerusalem. And in the culmination of those judgments, the city is divided into three parts as God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, last week we were in chapter 17. Chapter 17 was essentially a clarification of 16 to make sure that the readers of this prophecy would know who was being talked about when the word Babylon was used. So as John is taken away into the wilderness, there's another change in his perspective. He was by the throne. He was on the land, standing on the beach between the sea and the land of Israel. Now he is taken away in the spirit to a wilderness. And he has shown a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, and that beast is full of blasphemous names. Now, if you were at the Bible study last week, you know that the identification of this scarlet beast with the Roman Empire is relatively self-evident. And if you weren't at Bible study and you want to talk about that, I would be happy to talk about that with you. The scarlet beast is the Roman Empire. But why do we identify Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 and 18, our text for today, with Jerusalem? Well, there's a number of reasons. But to get just a bit ahead of ourselves, look at chapter 18, verse 21. 
there we are told that Babylon the Great was to be thrown down with violence and found no more because as it says in verse 24, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth or gay on the land. Now compare that with Matthew chapter 23 verses 34 and 35. In Matthew 23, Jesus said to Jerusalem, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Now one thing that, before I just go on with this quote from Jesus, in the Old Testament, most of the prophets that we encounter were sent to either the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. In other words, they were sent to the house of God's people. There were a handful that were sent out to the nations around. Jonah stands out as one of those. Jonah, this prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel who was sent to the Assyrians who had this long history of oppressing and enslaving the people of Israel. And Jonah is sent with arguably the most undesirable message ever. Jonah is sent to go to Nineveh with, with a one-point sermon. He's supposed to walk into this mighty city that takes several days to walk from one side to the other, and this city is full of people who hate him, and he's supposed to proclaim, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Thanks, folks. Um, <laughs> I'll be here till Tuesday. You know, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's interesting, though. The Ninevites didn't kill him. And most of the prophets that were sent to the nations, to the Gentile nations around Israel, made it out with their skin intact. You know who killed the prophets? Israel. Israel killed the prophets. Judah killed the prophets. And that's what Jesus is talking about. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now the Zechariah who wrote that old covenant book that has that name, this is not him. We don't know who this guy was. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is just another one of those prophets that made his appearance in Jerusalem and was killed, and it was something they did routinely. Remember Stephen? Stephen, who's the deacon who's serving the Grecian widows and, and providing mercy ministry to them, and he's preaching the gospel. They had no problem whatsoever just murdering him. They would have got to it with Jesus, too, if it hadn't been for the plan of God that the Romans were going to be involved in that. They tried on several occasions. They took up stones to stone him. They tried to drive him off a cliff on the brow of a hill like a mob of peasants with pitchforks. They would have gotten around to killing him, but God had decreed and planned the exact nature of how he was going to die, so it had to involve the Romans. But Jesus said, the blood of all the righteous 
shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is going to come on you. And Revelation 18 identifies this Babylon as in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the land. Add to that the fact that Jesus' very next words in Matthew chapter 23 are, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And if you have a little footnote in your Bible that says generation could mean race, it doesn't. Just cross it out, ignore it. The word in Greek is generation. That's what it means. That's what Jesus said. He was speaking to a particular generation of people at a very particular time, just before his crucifixion, and in a very particular place, which he himself will identify by name in the very next verse, when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And look how he identifies her again. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Other reasons exist for making this identification between Babylon and Jerusalem or Old Covenant Israel, but this should be adequate for now to make the case in the context of Revelation 17, which we looked at last week, and Revelation 18, which we are looking at this morning, Babylon the Great has become the spiritual identity of Jerusalem below, as Paul refers to her in Galatians, and that's not a good thing. We've seen why in chapter 17, but chapter 18 picks up that exact theme in the first two verses. After this, John writes, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So in the context of this vision, Babylon has fallen, but remember these words are being spoken just a few short years before that would actually happen in history. And this chapter will go on to recapitulate everything that has been said before, and it will adopt the poetic form of a lament, a kind of song that's often used in the Old Covenant prophets. In this case, the lament is taken up by this angel coming down from heaven, having authority and making the earth bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So at this point in the vision, as we said, this has already happened, but the, the fulfillment of it is coming. And when it comes, she will become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. But at the time that Bab this is given, at the time these words are spoken, Babylon was about to fall. And this is why a voice speaks from heaven in the very next verse saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Don't get drugged in with the wickedness that's all around you. Good company is corrupted by bad behavior. So don't take part in her sin lest you share in her plagues. Because if you get sucked into that way of living, then you're going to get sucked in or pulled into a certain way of dying. And we will go into much greater detail uh, 
on the rest of this chapter at the Bible study this evening. But for now, there is a historical context to this that we need to see. Because as he proclaims the fall of Babylon in a prophecy, he also gives a call to the people of Jerusalem, of Babylon, to come out of her both here in Revelation and in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus said in Luke 21, verses 20 through 22, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, keep in mind, when you see, Jesus is speaking to people who were alive and standing right there in front of him. And he says, when you see this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Some commentators have taken this passage in the Olivet Discourse to refer to the end of the world, the destruction of all things, in which case Jesus is being a little bit silly. He's wrong, first of all, and he's not, but... If that were true, he would be, because he's saying to people, when you see something which they will not see, then flee to the mountains. Well, what good would fleeing to the mountains do if this is supposed to be this worldwide, all-encompassing, end-of-the-world apocalyptic judgment? But Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Now historically, something happened here. Having received this travel itinerary from the Lord himself, and understanding that it applied to them not to a people that might not live for thousands of years. The Christians in Jerusalem were obedient to the word of the Lord. This is documented for us by Eusebius, a historian of the ancient church who wrote, the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city who were worthy of it to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella. Not that Pella, a different Pella. To it, those who believed on Christ traveled from Jerusalem. So Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out. And in Revelation chapter 18, this voice speaking from heaven says, come out of her, my people. Don't share in her plagues. And the people who were alive in that day got it. The Christians said, time to go. Epiphanius, another Roman historian, actually speaks to that same reality. They left Jerusalem, and they went to Perea. They went to the hills up around the Sea of Galilee, the area that Jesus encountered as the Decapolis, an area that was outside the boundaries of the judgment that Rome was about to bring down. Now, this may not seem huge, there might be someone listening to me who's saying, well, that just seems almost irrelevant. But I want to tell you why it's not. Because one of the strategies that some unbelievers use to attack the Bible, and if you want to see a really fine example of this, there's a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson where Hitchens does exactly this. He knows just enough 
of his New Testament to go back to some of the prophecies that Jesus made. Some of those prophecies that sound like what he was saying was about to happen very soon. And he says, well, so here's Jesus, your son of God who knows everything, right? And he's making these predictions and they don't come true. Why would you listen to anything else that Jesus said? If Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have come to pass, but clearly that generation did pass away. If these prophecies were being made about stuff at the end of the world, then why would we believe anything that Jesus said? This is an argument that gets used by unbelievers and God-haters. The thing is, if we understood these prophecies within this historical context, then what we see is that everything that Jesus said absolutely came true within the time frame that he said it would come true. Which means that instead of being an argument against the divinity and the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it becomes a validation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was prophet, priest, and king. And as prophet, when he spoke, the things that he said happened. And they happened when he said they were going to happen. And they happened where he said they were going to happen. When he said, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, all of those things came upon that generation of people who were alive and listening to him in the day. Jesus was not a false prophet. And that's very important because Jesus Christ was the Son of God and indeed let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. And this book, the book of Revelation, is for us in the same way that Old Testament prophecy is for us not because it's speaking to things that haven't happened yet so that we can have all kinds of interesting things to talk about at Bible studies, but rather so that we can look at the word of the Lord and see that it has been fulfilled. God always keeps his promises. And we find strength and hope in the truth that God keeps his promises. And in the truth that our God reigns, and here's where we're going to skip a whole bunch of chapter 18. Come to the Bible study, or join us online, please. Because if we skip down to verse 21, we read this. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is an echo of the prophet Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah was speaking about the old Babylon, which was thrown down as a force to be reckoned with. I think it was in 539 BC when the Medes and the Persians overran the city and Babylon ceased to be a significant world empire and would never be a world empire again. It's a little side note, free information. When you read the Bible and it's talking about Babylon in Jeremiah, it's not talking about Iraq and Iran. It's talking about Babylon in Jeremiah's day. So read it and understand it within the context. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
Don't try to interpret scripture with the internet open on your tablet next to you while you're reading your Bible. That's not how it's done. Read the book of Revelation. Read the Olivet Discourses in all three of the Gospels. Read the Old Covenant Prophets. All of these scriptures that are self-interpreting that bring us to this point where we understand. When God decrees the judgment and destruction of something, it happens. Jeremiah said that Babylon was going to be thrown into the river. He, he did this thing. It's in the last chapter. And he took a scroll and he tied it to a stone and he throws the stone into the Euphrates. And he says, that's how Babylon is going down. And now in the book of Revelation, this mighty angel says, the new Babylon, the great city, Jerusalem, which is below, will also be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So this is the last nail in the coffin. This is the final fulfillment of exactly what God promised to a faithless and disobedient people under the old covenant. We'll talk more about that tonight. But the fall of Jerusalem Josephus writes in the day of things that Moses spoke of in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy thousands of years before. In truth, this is the final fulfillment of the last phrase of the Old Covenant as we have it in our English Bibles, the last phrase of the book of Malachi, where God had said, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children, or else, <laughs> when God says, or else, pay attention. He said, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse or with destruction, depending on what translation you're using. And he did. God keeps his word. But this is not the last word. It is not God's last word. Just before verse 21, in verse 20, the voice which spoke, and this is the same voice that spoke in verse 4, said, Rejoice over her, you heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. This is counterintuitive to us. He's speaking of a terrible judgment that was to come on a people who had been wicked and rebellious and disobedient against the Lord. And we're not used to being told to rejoice over God's judgment of the wicked. Tonight we'll see, actually, the, the saints around the throne are singing the song of Moses, and Moses, his song recorded for us in Deuteronomy 32, does exactly that. But we're not used to it. We're not accustomed to thinking this way, probably having misunderstood what it means to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And the thing is, loving and praying for our enemies ultimately is focused on one thing, that God would bless them with salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't pray for the wicked. Oh God, keep them safe, bless them. Do all of these wonderful things for them. We pray, God, change their hearts, turn them to yourself, save them by your grace through faith. 
Because if God answers that prayer, then our enemies are no longer our enemies. They are our brothers. And where, they, where that may not happen, we are taught very specifically in Romans 12, verse 19, not to seek vengeance for ourselves. True. Don't take revenge, Paul says. That's important, but so is the next phrase. Rather, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the idea is not that there should never be justice or that there should never be vengeance against the wickedness of those who hate God. How many of us would want a world where there was never any justice for people who live and behave in evil ways? We don't want it for ourselves. We want mercy and grace for ourselves. But when it comes to that person who did that horrible thing to someone, well, we want justice for that. And the idea is not that there should never be justice. The idea is that such vengeance should be left exactly where it rightly belongs. It should be left in the hand and in the actions of God himself. And that's why we can rejoice. Because God's holiness, justice, and righteousness will out. God will be vindicated. The saints of God will be vindicated. God will be vindicated by pouring out his vengeance. But the beautiful thing of it is for those who repent and turn to him by grace and faith, through faith in Christ, that vengeance is poured out on Jesus. See, grace isn't about God saying, I'm never going to punish people for the things that they've done. Grace is about God saying, that can happen two ways. I can pour out my wrath on Jesus, and if you trust in him alone for your salvation, then you will never see that wrath. But if you reject him, you want nothing to do with Jesus, then I'll pour out my wrath on you. That's how it works. God doesn't say, well... Oh, I just love everybody so much. I guess I just won't hold anybody accountable for the things that they've done. That's not how grace works. Grace works when the punishment that we so richly deserve, the wrath and condemnation that is ours because of our sin, is poured out on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he takes the vengeance of God for us. And that's why we can rejoice, because in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me, all his enemies and mine. He will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones those enemies that we prayed for who turned to Jesus and became brothers, we and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. 
Even so, the voice from heaven in Revelation 18 said, Rejoice over her. Over fallen Babylon, rejoice, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. So bringing us back from the wilderness and bringing us back into the throne room of God, the saints and the angels and the elders in Revelation chapter 19 do exactly that. And so should we. We'll be looking at this somewhat tonight and more in more depth next Lord's Day. But let me close this morning reading Revelation 19 verses 1 through 7. Remember in 18, the voice from heaven said, Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you and against her. Now listen to the first seven verses of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, that great multitude whom no man could number, the saints gathered before the throne of God. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Then once more, for the second time, they cried out, Hallelujah! Remember that? We sing that song, Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. Was the next phrase? Praise ye the Lord, right? Well, that was tongues and interpretation. Hallelujah is just praise ye the Lord in another language. So they're saying, praise the Lord. The smoke from fallen Babylon goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah. And the 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. You may have heard that somewhere in a concert, something like that. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord because his holiness and his righteousness and his justice will out. Praise the Lord, he will be vindicated. His word is truth, and he will bring to pass everything that he has spoken. Praise the Lord, because the church is not the false, adulterous bride. The church is the true bride of Christ. And let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride 
has made herself ready. More on that as we go forward in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, speak to us by your word and spirit. Where it is required, create repentance and faith and draw us to yourself that we may find salvation and life and hope in Jesus Christ. And where that salvation exists, Father, where you have already made us your people, let us rejoice and be glad, even in the midst of trials and struggles. For the Lord God, our Lord God, the omnipotent, the almighty, reigneth, and you shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen.